Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 278. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We've got a special show today, we have got, or we are publicising and sharing a little bit light on John Joseph Adams' new collection, new anthology, The Mad Scientist Guide to World Domination. <laughs> oh cool is that title? I remember ages ago John mentioned this, I think it was, might have been on an interview on this show or somewhere along the lines I was speaking to John and he mentioned this idea for a story or a collection of stories and it just... I've said it umpteen times, that's the key to John, I think John's success, is just picking these like kind of quirky genres and grouping these stories together to make like a fantastic anthology. We've got a fantastic story. This is what's coming up from that collection is Theodora Goss's The Mad Scientist's Daughter. And it's just, like you say, a fabulous story and a fantastic narration as well. I'll tell you what else is coming in today's show. First up is Science News, JJ Campanella. Then we have a little introduction to this story and to John Joseph Adams by the man himself. Little introduction to like his kind of anthology, what's going on over there as well. Then we get into this main fiction, which is Theodora Goss's The Mad Scientist's Daughter. How about that? Couple of little news things and a shout out for some help as well along the way. But a little couple of news things. Oh, they're both actually mixed into one. First off is, I had an email from Skeet regarding his... Remember I said he couldn't do this show, or he couldn't do it because he, he kind of busted up his arm? Well, it's actually worse than what he thought. And here he kind of get back to work. And he's got to kind of just, I guess, draw for a living. He said he can kind of draw and do things. But he's not been able to go back to work because of this injury. So... Hence, he kind of do the art on, on this side of things. He hasn't got the free time. He's got to kind of pencil and draw till his heart's content to try and make some money for his family. So up until now, we're going to kind of take a break on the art covers, which is a kind of crying shame because there was just getting into some fantastic momentum. Skeet was picking some awesome pictures and then putting like his little thing on there. Now, I don't know if anyone's interested in kind of stepping up to the mark and getting some art, do you know what I mean? And actually, I'm a finicky little thing as well. You know, Skeet a couple of times in the early days, should I say, said, Tony, what do you think about that one? And I, nah, that ain't going to work. So it, it's a kind of, <laughs> it's, a, it's a job that's hideously hard and uh, you see, you've got to find some artwork and then put like a little audio to it. If you, if you wanted like a temporary, there's a, there's a temporary post on Starship Sova for an art editor until Skeet gets back. He's taught about six to eight months, I think, so... That's, um, I would hate to see it go on hold for that long. But if anyone's interested in kind of going basically cap in hand to art, artists and saying, we'll have that, can we have that? 
for Nick's. <laughs> so get get in touch, starshipsover at gmail.com. The next little shout out is guess who started another little podcast? Yes. Well, now that's kind of all them babies up on the District of Wonders are put to bed. And Adam's helping us. Yeah, and Adam, it's just lovely. I can just come on the day of recording and everything's there for us for this Starship Sova. And I've kind of, I've been doing a, th- a few things, you know, I don't know if anyone knows or anything. I've been trying to get fit for a while. Do you know what I mean? About, well, I've been kind of, uh, for a, about nine months there now, trying to swim most days. And actually, sometimes you can, you know, most days, five days a week I've been trying. And I've had, you know, when I first started off, I was like a really slow snail. And now I'm just a slow snail. But, you know... The the actual new podcast is technically fit and healthy. It'll be a tech podcast, all to do with the kind of technology. All this is what I love is like those Wi-Fi scales and these kind of active trackers, and it's just really doing like a tech podcast on the technology that comes about. You know, from kind of this new revelation. You know, it's kind of it's all kind of kicking off at the moment. These activity trackers, and so if anyone's into kind of sport and fitness and health and wants to kind of come on, maybe you know, like. As a guest presenter, that's what the intention is, just to kind of have some, speak, you know, knock some ideas around when we're doing a show. So if anyone's interested in that, again, drop us a line, starshipsofa at gmail.com. So we'll kick off then with the day's show. It is the one, the only, Mr. J.J. Campanella, Science News Jim. Greetings and regressions, my fine listeners, and welcome to this February 2013 Science News Update. I'm your host for this hitting streak struck science podcast, Jim Campanella. I was reminded earlier this month when I did my first story narration in quite a while that I have done this little science podcast edition for Starship Sofa every month since 2008. That is an unbroken hitting streak that I suspect no other contributor, except for Tony, has the honor of holding. I'm not sure whether to cheer or be worried about my sanity. My wife insists I have too much stress and I don't sleep enough between my job and the kids and the house and the science podcast and my book cast and martial arts and trying to keep up with my writing. I'm going to try to simplify my life a little bit tonight with an offer to you listeners or at least the ones who are narrators. I have been regularly doing the Uvula audio book cast for longer than I have been a member of the Starship Sofa crew. Uh, Take a look at uvulaaudio.com if you are curious, U-V-U-L-A audio.com. My own podcast is the presentation of mainly whole novels that are now in the public domain and or have not been published in so long that they may as well be in the public domain. Uvula has recorded everything from H.P. Lovecraft to L. Frank Baum stories. We also present pulp crime like The Avenger and Doc Savage, as well as classic genre fiction from the likes of Andre Norton. I have not had another narrator on the team in a while, and it is getting to be a bit of a slog. I still love doing the narrations, and people apparently love to download them, but uh, perhaps I'm slowing a bit? At any rate, the Starship Sofa podcast seems as good a place as any to put out the call for any narrator would like to try reading a longer form than the short stories found on here. If you're interested, contact me with your demo MP3s at campanella at uvulaaudio.com. 
We can talk about possible projects and what is presently available in terms of upcoming books. If you'd like to narrate long-term, great. If you want to do a one-shot just to try it out, also great. At any rate, any help that I could get would really reduce my workload and perhaps help me to get beyond the midpoint of my newest novel. I better stop now. I'm supposed to be talking about science and not shilling for my own podcast. Alrighty. The first two stories of the night are a bit of an update on the science misconduct stories that I've been relaying to you over the last couple of months. Of those two stories, the first comes from the last issue of the journal M-Bio. And the story is by Dr. Farrick Fang, a researcher at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Fang reports something that probably should not come as much of a surprise. He found out that two-thirds of researchers responsible for recent cases of scientific misconduct in the life sciences are male. Across all career stages and from 1994 to 2012, men are overrepresented in misconduct cases compared to women in the field. This new analysis is the first to look at differences in misconduct rates between the genders, and it adds to a growing collection of data that aims to explain who commits scientific fraud and why. Fang's team used data from the U.S. Office of Research Integrity that provided details on 228 misconduct cases that have come up over the last 12 years. His team parsed the data by career stage, students, postdoctoral fellows, research personnel, and faculty members, since each has a different gender balance. 65% of the misconduct was attributed to men. Among faculty members, 88% of the cases were committed by men, who make up less than 70% of the total population of scientists. More misconduct, about 32%, was attributed to faculty members than students, about 16%, or postdocs, 25%, or other research personnel, which is about 28%. Most people automatically assume that you will find students being bad scientists before their mentors, but that doesn't seem to be the case. It also seems that efforts to combat misconduct in students and postdocs are pretty damned misguided. Somebody needs to have a long talk with the PIs, uh, that's the primary investigator, the senior faculties on those grants. Fang says, quote, further sociological research is needed to reveal what factors may be at play in the gender imbalance, and much data is still lacking because scientists accused of misconduct infrequently speak publicly about their cases, unquote. The second scientific misconduct story should send taxpayers, at least in the USA, into a tizzy. Dr. Harold Garner a professor at Virginia Tech, published an article in Nature last week on an analysis that makes one simple claim. And that claim is this. A whole series of research projects over the last 10 years in the U.S. have been funded multiple times and cost taxpayers untold amounts of money. Garner analyzed over 600,000 grant and contract summaries from the largest U.S. funders using a supercomputer that he built called Shadowfax. The grant applications were drawn from the five largest funders in the United States, the Susan J. Komen Foundation for the Cure, the DOD, the DOE, NSF, and NIH. His analysis found that overall tens of millions of dollars were awarded to projects that appeared to have already been funded partially or completely funded by those agencies. Hence, 
a large number of grant holders have been double-dipping. Shadowfax conducted about 200 billion text comparisons between the grant abstracts to identify similar or duplicate projects. Then, Garner's team filtered the data to remove applications that looked like they were connected to conferences or large projects that would require funding from multiple agencies. While the computer immediately identified several thousand possible duplications, the analysis required further human review because unique grant applications from the same research group often contain similar wording and research background sections. So Garner had to personally review every grant pair the computer flagged as potential duplicates. By the time he was finished, Garner identified 167 pairs of grants that they believed were likely to have been double-funded. Between 2007 and 2011, they identified 39 pairs that totaled more than $20 million in research funding. That is, of course, $20 million that could have gone to other researchers who were deserving of funding. Garner is convinced that the findings greatly underestimate the amount of double-dipping that actually does exist. He says, quote, We know from surveys of scientists that a large fraction, maybe a couple of percent, admit to having plagiarized. We found only a tenth of a percent or so, so we know there is about 35 times more plagiarism being done than we can discover with our software, unquote. You can do the calculations yourself, but... If a similar number of researchers are dishonest in their grant applications, the amount of duplicate funding might be as much as $5 billion since 1985, or about 2 to 3% of all funds. That's what Garner has calculated, and he insists that he is just scratching the surface of the iceberg here. Garner estimates that just in the area of NIH research, that the amount of money spent on double-funded projects since 1985 is probably about $300 million. He says, quote, There is a lot of research that could be funded for money saved if double-dipping is curtailed, unquote. Garner also makes it very clear in his article, just like me, that he wouldn't mind a piece of all that money that gets saved from those scientists who are doubling up. Next story. I've been saying for years that breakthroughs in genetic technology would soon allow everyone to have their DNA sequenced for a reasonable price and speed. That has pretty much come to pass in the last year or so, as the price of genomic sequencing has fallen to about $1,000. I also warned everyone all those years ago when I first started talking about this, that human genome sequencing could potentially be abused by insurance companies, potential employers, and even governmental agencies. Well, I have to admit that I never really thought that the next story would be possible, let alone that it would happen so quickly. Dr. Yaniv Ehrlich of the Whitehead Institute has just published a paper in the January issue of the journal Science that explains how he took anonymous DNA sequence data and figured out whose DNA it was. I am still astounded by this and cannot believe that such data is not more secure. Genotype data of thousands of individuals are deposited and accessed in online databases involved with the Thousand Genomes Project, and the data are supposed to be anonymous. Using only publicly available internet tools, Ehrlich deduced the identity of 50 individuals who submitted personal genetic material to the Thousand Genomes Project. Ehrlich says, quote, You could sit next to your computer, and if you have the right knowledge, you can go all the way from sequence files and the thousand genomes just using public tools, and in some cases go back to the people. 
unquote. Before Ehrlich worked in science, he tested bank security systems, so it's not exactly surprising for him to wonder about the security of public genetic data. Ehrlich and his team used a computer tool they developed called Lobster to analyze genetic information made public by the Thousand Genomes Project. They focused on the Y chromosome because both the Y chromosome and family surnames are transmitted from father to son and do stay together, providing kind of a ripe target for identification. Then Ehrlich's team put the lobster results into two online databases, Ysearch and SMGF. And both of these are free of charge websites that allow individuals to search for genealogy matches based on Y chromosome genetic data. On average, the database returned a last name associated with the genetic information 12% of the time. The problem is that thousands of individuals in the U.S. had the same last names. So for the final step, Ehrlich's team used age and state of residency. That is demographic information that is not protected by the U.S. privacy laws and is typically associated with genetic data online. They used that to narrow their results to specific individuals. Ehrlich said, quote, We went from 300 million people in the U.S. very quickly to just two males, and that was just based on public searches. At that point, we could just call each of them and ask if they had actually participated in a genetic study. Unquote. It's scary stuff. Ehrlich refuses to reveal any of the names he discovered, which is good. He says that he did not do this work to get the databases closed or get them shut down, but to point up where they are weak, and to get them shored up. Quote, The focus of the study is to illuminate the current status of genetic privacy, to engage public discussion about it, and to maybe get some better legislation and policies to protect data misuse. Unquote. When Ehrlich went to the NIH directors with his results, they immediately altered the database to remove age data, hence making it that much harder to associate a particular person with a particular genome. Ehrlich calls this just a stopgap, and he is still in conversations with the powers that be to make the security process even better. The next story was sent to me by listener C.J. Urso. The article came out in late January in the journal Nature Chemistry, which is not one that I tend to read very often, since I am not much of a chemist, but still the article seems to be much more biology-based than chemistry-based, at least as far as I'm concerned. It comes out of the Departments of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of Cambridge, UK, and the lab of Dr. Shankar Balasubramanian. Considering that the original double helical structure of DNA was discovered at Cambridge by Watson and Crick some 60 years ago, it's only appropriate that a new structural breakthrough in DNA is revealed there as well. Balasubramanian has discovered a new form of DNA that is actually quadruplexed. That is, it is wrapped into a four-strand structure. Although it has been known for years that you can do this at a test tube under the right chemical conditions, which promotes something called Hugstein base pairing, this is the first time that anyone has ever shown in living cells that this quadruplexed structure has any biological significance. Bala Subramanian's lab developed antibodies that very specifically recognize quadruplex DNA so that it can be identified in a chromosome or a cell. Balasubramanian's team identified the four-strand structures in cancer cells with the help of his specific antibody that attaches exclusively 
to G quadruplexes. To stop them from unraveling into ordinary DNA, they expose the cells to pyridostatin, a molecule that traps quadruple helixes whenever they form. This enabled the authors to count how many of these formed at each stage of cell multiplication while the cancer cells divided. The quadruplexes were most abundant in the S phase of development. The S phase is when cells replicate their DNA just prior to dividing. Bala Supramanian says, quote, I expect the quadruplexes will also exist in normal cells, but I predict that there will be differences with cancer cells. I have a hunch that the quadruplexes are triggered into action by chaotic genomic mutation and reorganizations typical of cancerous or precancerous cells, unquote. Another important question that Bala Subramanian will try to answer is whether G quadruplexes play a role in embryo development and whether such a role is mistakenly reactivated in cancer cells. In short, he wants to know whether the structures are pathogenic or simply part of the process of cell division and development. On to the next story. I've been arguing with my parents for years about whether flu shots are bad for you or not. They insist that not only should both my wife and I not get flu shots, but we should not allow our kids to get them either, as if our school system would allow such a thing. They share the opinion of many other people that flu shots are more likely to make you ill than actually prevent illness, this despite any actual corroborating evidence to support that belief. Well, the next story addresses this issue, at least in part, and answers the question of whether it is better and safer for a pregnant woman to get a flu shot or not to get a flu shot. This month in the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Camilla Stoltenberg of the Norwegian Institute of Public Health in Oslo examined whether it is worse for a pregnant woman to get the flu or to get a flu vaccine. It turns out that getting the flu appears to nearly double a pregnant woman's risk of having a miscarriage or stillbirth. But getting vaccinated during pregnancy greatly reduces a woman's risk of flu without any other associated risks. In short, the study also finds that getting a flu shot during pregnancy is safe. Anecdotal reports, such as my parents relate, had suggested that flu vaccination during gestation might have adverse effects on the fetus, but the new study, as well as two previous reports from Canada and Denmark, now show no such connection. Stoltenberg scanned Norway's National Registry of Medical Information and identified more than 100,000 pregnancies during late 2009. Pregnant women who received the flu vaccine were one-third as likely to get the flu as were unvaccinated pregnant women. Stoltenberg said, quote, Our results confirm findings from other recent studies that have found no association between flu vaccination and stillbirth or other adverse events in pregnancy, unquote. Stoltenberg also tabulated miscarriages and stillbirths that occurred during the second and third trimesters of pregnancy. Among the children born to roughly 26,000 vaccinated mothers, there were 78 fetal deaths. 414 fetal deaths occurred among 87,000 unvaccinated mothers. The researchers calculated that women who got the flu were almost twice as likely to lose the fetus than unaffected women. My reading suggests that influenza hits pregnant women much harder than other women, and that flu shots have been recommended for pregnant women for decades. But apparently lots of women do not get the shots because of warped perceptions and old wives' tales. One of those warped perceptions is that, well, the flu is just the flu, 
and it won't affect a pregnant woman any worse than a non-pregnant one. In short, they think, big deal, it's just the flu. And that's not true. Flu can increase the chances of fetal death. It's not entirely clear what the connection is between flu and fetal death, but the authors of this paper and other scientists suspect that high fever and systemic inflammation in the mother are a major cause. Well, the last story of the night suggests that you can now blame your grandparents for you being overweight. And you always knew it wasn't your fault anyway, right? Another environmental toxin-slash-pollutant has the potential to cause a lot of problems out there, and for multiple generations, not just one. So even if the toxin were removed now, at least two generations would still be affected. Welcome to the modern world. So Dr. Raquel Chamorro-Garcia of UC Irvine reported last month in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives that exposure in the womb to a chemical used to make PVC plastic, and also ship paint, promotes obesity in mice. Not only does it make the mice fatter, but the effect is long-lasting. The mice's grandchildren were also fat, even though they had never had exposure to the chemical. The authors are calling the chemical pollutant an obesogen, that is a chemical that encourages fat accumulation. This new nasty compound is called tributylton, and it is often added to PVC as a stabilizer and also to marine paint as an anti-fouling agent. Comoro Garcia fed pregnant mice tributylton in their drinking water at levels similar to what people might ingest through house dust and other sources. The mice gave birth to pups that developed more and larger fat cells, as well as fattier livers compared with unexposed pups. And here's the most disturbing thing about this. Although they have not checked yet beyond the third generation, the authors believe that the physical changes in the mice may be permanent. The children and grandchildren of these mice also increased their amounts of body and liver fat. The findings confirm previous work shown that tributylton affects the functions of a gene that regulates body fat production and reprograms certain stem cells to become fat cells rather than bone cells. Apparently, that reprogramming is passed along to the next generations, although it's not entirely clear how that is possible. It's likely that the alterations are being retained at an epigenetic level because just changing somatic cells should not also be changing offspring. Does it work like this in humans? Well, we have no idea. But it's safe to bet that the new defensive cry of the overweight in the future will not be, I'm big boned. It'll be, my dad was a plumber and laid PVC pipe. Or, my mom painted ships for a living. I suspect that this obesogen thing will not be going away very soon. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. Get your flu shots. Don't chew on shipped bulkheads or PVC pipes. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. And there you go, Jim. Thank you very much. And it's funny, you know, because February always catches me out. Jim's kind of work come in dead early. And I was thinking, wow, you're quick this year, we, we, Jim. Because normally, you know... Jim's always the end of the week, end of the month, and it kind of comes in a day or two before. But it always comes in. And then, like, it, it dropped this week, and I was thinking, wow. But then 
Oh, he's right, I'm wrong. Bloody short, short month. So, Jim, thank you so much. Next up is the main fiction, and it's by Theodora Goss, the mad scientist's daughter. I'll give you a little heads up about Theodora. It's the first time we've had Theodora on the show, which is actually lovely, to be quite honest. I'm sure I've dropped her an email or two and just, you know, never, never got a reply. Like most people, never replied to us. Theodora Goss's stories have appeared in magazines such as Realms of Fantasy, Strange Horizons and Clark's World, Fantasy Magazine, Lady Churchill's Rosebud, Wristlet and Apex Magazine. Anthologies featuring her work include Ghost by Candlelight, Other Earths, The Year's Best Fantasy, The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, The Apocalypse Reader and John Joseph Adams' Under the Moons of Mars, The New Adventures of Barsoom. Much of her short work has been collected in The Forest of Forgetting. She's also the editor of Voices from Fairyland and Interfictions with Delia Sherman. She is the winner of the World Fantasy Award and the Rising Award and has been a finalist for the Nebula, Crawford, Mythopoeic and Tip Tree Awards. Now this narration is just fantastic and it's by Justine Eyre. Justine Eyre is a classically trained actress with leading roles in plays such as King Lear, The Crucible and Jitters. She studied with the National Institute of Broadcast in Toronto and was the narrator for the Holocaust drama I Never Saw Another Butterfly. She has narrated more than 200 audiobooks, earning a prestigious audio award and four audiophile earphones award. She's multilingual and known for her skill with accents. She had a starring role in four films on the indie circuit and recent television credits include Two and a Half Men and Mad Men. Now, just before we delve into that story, a little introduction by the man himself who's put together this collection, John Joseph Adams. Hey there, Starship Sofanauts. The good captain has allowed me to take over the ship's intercom once again, so I can tell you about my new anthology, The Mad Scientist's Guide to World Domination. I first got the idea for the anthology when I was listening to Escape Pod's production of Instead of a Loving Heart by Jeremiah Tolbert. I really enjoyed the story, and I thought, man, I really like Mad Scientists. Someone should really do a Mad Scientist anthology. And before I even completed the thought, of course I realized that since no one else had done such a book, I should be the one to do it. But just doing a Mad Scientist anthology seemed too straightforward. We've always been fascinated by sinister scientific schemes and megalomaniacal plans for world domination, but typically we see mad scientists and evil geniuses through the eyes of superheroes, or other good guys, as they attempt to put an end to their quote-unquote evil ways. So that, coupled with the mad scientist habit of telling captured heroes all their diabolical plans, I thought... Isn't it about time someone gave them a platform to reach the masses with their messages of death and destruction? That was where the idea started, anyway. As the story started coming in, the anthology evolved to encompass other kinds of mad scientist and evil genius tales as well, which resulted in a book much more diverse than what I had originally envisioned, much to the anthology's benefit. That said, mad scientists and or nefarious plots for world domination are at the heart of every story. The anthology contains 20 originals, along with two reprints, including that story by Jeremiah Tolbert that inspired the book, mostly from the point of view of the villains, or sometimes from those who know them best. So that's the gist of the book. It was a lot of fun to put together, and I'm very pleased with the results, though I admit I was hoping that doing the book would qualify me for membership in the Guild of Calamitous Intent, or the Evil League of Evil. But it turns out they have some pretty stringent qualification requirements, and apparently attempting to take over the anthology world doesn't count as a real bid for world domination. Oh well, I guess I'll have to try something else. 
Meanwhile, here's a story from the anthology, The Mad Scientist's Daughters, by Theodora Goss. In London, we formed a club. It's very exclusive. There are only six members. Five of us live on the premises. Helen, who is married, lives in Bloomsbury, but she comes to have dinner with us twice a week. We need each other. None of us has sisters, except Mary and Diana, in a way, so we take the place of sisters for each other. Who else could share or sympathise with our experiences? 1. The house near Regent's Park Mary created a trust that holds the deed to the house. We're all listed as beneficiaries. Miss Justine Frankenstein, Miss Catherine Moreau, Miss Beatrice Rappuccini, Miss Mary Jekyll, Miss Diana Hyde, Mrs. Arthur Mayrink, nay, Helen Raymond. But it is her house, really. Her father left it to her, along with a moderate fortune. She is the only one of us who has inherited any money. Science does not pay well. Mad science pays even worse. From that fortune she created a fund, out of which we can draw for emergencies, but we all work. Mary paints some porcelain. Justine and Beatrice embroider vestments for the church. I write potboilers for the penny press. Diana is on the music hall stage. She can't, she says, stand the dull, ladylike sort of work the rest of us do. She must have excitement. The footlights, the grease paint, the admirers. We don't judge. Who, oh, indeed, are we to do so? We've all done things of which we are not proud. The club is a haven for us, a port in a particularly stormy world. Helen does not work, of course. She has a household to run, a daughter to raise. She is also her husband's model. You might remember her as Helen Bourne, although she also went by Herbert or Beaumont, at the time of what the newspapers called the West End Horrors. I have seen paintings of her at the Grosvenor, as Medusa with snakes for hair, or Elamia. I envy her sometimes, living in the midst of an artistic ferment, participating in the world. But then I curl up on the sofa by the fire in the club room, at peace with the world and myself, and think about how lucky I am to be here, out of the tumult of life, and I am content. 2. How We Live and Work Beatrice lives in the conservatory. We had it built especially for her, at the back of the house where the laboratory used to be. Looking in through the glass from the garden, you'd think we were growing a jungle. Vines grow up the posts of her bed, orchids and passion flowers hang down over her as she sleeps. I can see the table where she hybridizes her flowers, but only dimly, since there is always a mist on the glass. Some of the plants I recognize, jasmine, oleander, castor bean, hellebore, laburnum, all part of her poisonous pharmacopoeia. And plants that she has created, plants only we have seen, and only in glimpses, since it is deadly for any of us to stay in the conservatory too long. She pollinates them herself, since insects can't live in the conservatory. She breathes in their fumes, and they give her a particular luster. Beatrice is the only one of us, other than Helen, with any claim to beauty, but it is the beauty of a poisonous flower. Sometimes, when she's been sitting with us in the club room too long, she tells us that she feels faint and must return to the conservatory. The powders she makes and sells to the medical school supplement our income. Apart from Beatrice, only Justine can visit the conservatory for any length of time. Nothing seems to harm her physically, 
although eventually breathing those poisonous fumes, even she will begin to feel faint. But she is the most sentimental of us, the pigeons rucooing on the roof, the first flowers on the cherry tree outside her window, a book of poetry, will all bring her to tears. Reading Wordsworth will depress her for a week. I can't help laughing sometimes, to myself, of course, when I look out my window and see her sitting in the garden, sighing like a sad giantess. Justine lives in the attic. She says that she likes to be close to the sky and the pigeons, but really, I think it's the only room in the house where the ceiling is high enough for her. When you're seven feet tall, even a ten-foot ceiling feels cramped. All of her furniture had to be made to order. The long bed, the wardrobe tall enough to accommodate her dresses, the looking-glass that we bought from a magician who used it to perform tricks. We've offered to help her decorate, to paper the walls, hang lithographs. I've offered to sew her curtains. But no, she says, she prefers a spartan simplicity of whitewash, a bedstead and a single chair, sunlight streaming through the windows. A cross hanging over her bed and a miniature of her grandmother on the dresser are the only decorations. And books, piles and piles of books, mostly religious but also a great deal of poetry. Too much, I think, to be entirely healthy for her. Mary, Diana and I live below her on the second floor. Mary and Diana share a room. We've told them it's not necessary that we can convert the library into a room for one of them, but they prefer to live together. I think it took so long for them to find each other, they do not want to be parted, even for a night, although they constantly disagree. Mary, tall, slender, fair, a quiet girl, who is always either embroidering or reading philosophical works. Diana, short, dark as a gypsy, as temperamental as I imagine all actresses are. When we found her, she was working in a brothel. We are not entirely certain that she has given up her less respectable pursuits. When she comes home smelling of gin, it is Mary who sits with her and bathes her head while she lies on the sofa, moaning. I suspect Mary has, on more than one occasion, paid Diana's debts. Mary's side of the room. Blue wallpaper with a pattern of white flowers, blue and white checked curtains, a brass bed with white linen, a small desk on which she's put daffodils in a vase. Diana's side of the room. Indian silks and reds and pinks and oranges, like an exotic sunset. A divan covered with pillows beside a table carved to resemble an elephant. Clothes strewn all over the floor because she is incapable of keeping anything neat. Everywhere, statues of Hindu gods, Buddhas with fat bellies, an onyx dog from Africa, a collection of brass bells, dyed baskets, the detritus of empire. A vanity inlaid with ivory and strewn with cosmetics, that, Mary tells her, will eventually ruin her complexion. Mrs. Poole refuses to clean Diana's half of the room. Let her learn to pick up after herself, she says, uncharacteristically. What would we do without Mrs. Poole? Her father worked for the Jekylls and his father before him. She takes care of us all, makes certain that Justine isn't starving herself on a diet of lettuce and parsley, that Diana gets up by noon so she can make her curtain call. She feeds my cats. My room is not very interesting. I was born in Argentina, and then reborn on my father's island in the South Seas. Perhaps that is why my room is as English as possible.
roses on the wallpaper, a rose chintz on the armchair, a mahogany suite, bed, dresser, wardrobe, a bookshelf filled with Jane Austen, the Brontes, George Eliot, a desk where I write my potboilers, the mysteries of Astarte, the adventures of Rick Chambers, Rick Chambers and Astarte, Rick Chambers on Venus, Invasion of the Catwomen. I look down at the page in the typewriter. No mortal man can resist me, said Astarte, pulling back her veil. The eyes that looked at him shone like twin stars in the night sky, dark and yet luminous in her white face. The perfect mouth, with lips curved like the famous bows of the Phoenicians, laughed. Harold fell down before her, worshipping her beauty. Even Professor Hardcastle wiped the sweat from his brow. Only Rick remained calm. Your beauty, madam, is most impressive, but I am an Englishman, and I prefer justice. That will be the death of Astarte. I've already been paid for the resurrection of Astarte, and Rick Chambers, Jr., in the Caverns of Doom. On the bed, three cats lie purring, Alpha, Omega, and Bess. I found them one morning, three ragged kittens mewing by the kitchen door. Poor things. How difficult it must be to be a kitten in London, always running from dogs, always in danger of being run over by cartwheels. Of course we took them in. The club is a refuge for them as well, and I am particularly fond of cats. 3. What we talk about. Sometimes we talk about our fathers. Justine. My father loved me. He made me from the corpse of a girl who'd been a servant to the Frankenstein family. She'd been hanged for a crime she did not commit, and he had preserved her body, anticipating that some day he might be able to once again give her life. He even gave me her name to commemorate her innocence. I can't begin to tell you what a wonderful childhood I had. My father guided me gently through the various stages of knowledge. He taught me the words to describe the world around me, the birds, the plants, the phenomena of nature. He taught me to read, and in the evenings we would read together, Paradise Lost, The Sorrows of Werther, Plutarch's Lives. But he was always haunted by the memory of the creature he had created, and eventually that creature came for him. At his death, I lost my father and my only friend, until... She looks at us, sitting and listening to her the firelight on our faces. Until I found you. And we look away politely while she blows her nose into a handkerchief. Beatrice. For so many years I was angry at my father. I thought he had no right to make me poisonous, to make my only playmates the plants of his garden. Helen. He had no right. Seriously, Beatrice, you're too forgiving. You need to learn to stand up for yourself. Mary, for goodness sake, let her finish. You're always interrupting. Helen, that's because I can't stand to see any of you justifying them. I mean, seriously, they were abusive bastards and that's all there is to it. Catherine, I have to agree with Helen. Abusive bastards seems, you know, fairly accurate. I mean, look at my father. Beatrice, I don't think you can compare my father to yours, Cat. No offence, but your father was a butcher. Mine brought me up himself in a beautiful garden. Mary. I agree that there are relative degrees of, well, although I don't like to say it, abusive bastardhood. But B, he never taught you anything. 
All that time on his hands, and he never took any of it to sit you down, teach you about your own biology. So you ended up poisoning the man you loved, basically by accident. Beatrice. I should have known. Diana. Why in the world would you blame yourself? I'm with Helen. They were bastards, the lot of them. Even Justine's sainted Papa Frankenstein. Look at me, born in a brothel. My mother died of syphilis. Mary. You can't generalize your story to all of us. Diana. Oh, right, now you're taking the other side. My story is our story. Or have you forgotten, sister? Justine. For goodness sake, why are we arguing? I know perfectly well that my father wasn't perfect. But why should I remember all his faults? Why can't I remember the good times we had together? How kind he could be. Helen. Because that's like lying to yourself. We've all been lied to. Do we really want to lie to ourselves as well? And then we are all quiet and stare into the fire. My father, Helen continues, was a scientist like yours. He took my mother from the gutters where she was starving, fed her, educated her, seduced her, and then experimented on her. She had a vision. She saw something she could not, or perhaps did not have the guts to, understand. The god Pan, source of all order and disorder, Alpha and Omega, to whom all things in the end will come. Nine months later, I was born, daughter of the respectable Dr. Raymond and of Pan. It's not hard to understand why, as a teenager, I tried to destroy the world. Sometimes I wish I had. I mean, look at it. The other day, a man tried to steal my pocketbook. He was drunk, red-eyed and reeking of gin, and I turned and started hitting him with my umbrella. I thought, I could have destroyed you all, the beggars, the bankers, the filthy streets of London. Catherine. So, why didn't you? Helen. Well, I married Arthur around that time, and then Leda was born. I would have had to destroy Regent's Park and ice cream and prams. It just didn't seem practical. Besides, I didn't want to give my father the satisfaction. Mrs. Poole comes in. Would any of you ladies like some tea? Four. A peaceful domestic scene. Sometimes when Helen comes, she brings her daughter, Leda. She's a solemn child with black hair that curls past her shoulders, genuinely hyacinthine. When she smiles, you can faintly hear the clashing of cymbals, the strings of the lyre plucked, the chanting of Bacantes. You pause, thinking, I must be imagining it, and then you realise that no, you really are hearing something otherworldly. Once I saw her in the garden, playing with a boy who had horns on his head and the legs and hooves of a goat. She can't control it, says Helen. She's too young. I couldn't control it either at her age. Leda is only twelve, but we can see it in her already, what we all seem to have, what I would describe as a mark if it were not so variable. I look in the mirror. I am everywhere, golden brown. Brown hair, brown skin, golden eyes. If you look at them too closely, you'll begin to feel strange. You'll realise that my pupils are slitted, except in the dark, that I do not blink as often as I ought to. And my face, although well-shaped, is seamed with scars. We all have the mark, but in different ways. 
Mary, our golden-haired English girl, sits too still, is too placid for human nature. If you sit with her long enough, you'll start to become nervous. Justine, willowy, elegant, is too tall for a woman or even a man. Diana, lively and laughing, suffers from attacks of the hysteria. She will, suddenly, begin to pull out her hair, cut her arm with a dinner knife. Once, when she was younger, she almost bled to death. Beatrice, beautiful Beatrice, who moves through the house like a walking colour lily, kills with her breath. When we gather together for dinner, she sits at the far end of the table. She has her own dishes and plates, which Mrs. Poole collects wearing gloves. You could, I suppose, call us monsters. We are frightening, aren't we? Although we are, in our different ways, attractive. When we walk down the street, men look and then look away. And then perhaps look again, and away again. Some of us don't leave the house more than we have to. The butcher delivers, and Mrs. Poole goes to the grocer's. But not even Justine can stay inside all the time. Sometimes we have to just, you know, get out, go to the library or the park. Personally, I'm sorry that veils are going out of fashion. Imagine us in the evenings, sitting by the fire in the club room. I'm reading from the yellow book. Justine is darning a sock. Mary is sketching Beatrice, who is posing by the window, which is open at the bottom, despite an autumn chill. When will Diana return from the theatre? Beatrice asks. I really don't know, says Mary. She has a new hanger-on, some sort of Viscount. I just wish she'd be more careful. Well, I say, if he does anything to hurt her, we'll sick Beatrice on him. Oh, Justine, says Beatrice. Me, says Justine. You know I wouldn't hurt a fly. Yes, I say, but he wouldn't know that. You look frightening enough. I couldn't. I mean, it would be terrible, says Justine. Oh, for goodness sake, I say. When the villagers come with pitchforks, what are you going to do? Hide in a hayloft? We should be ready to, I don't know, tear their throats out. This is London, but how far away are they ever, the villagers with pitchforks? Let's get back to the story, says Mary, the conciliator. I want to know whether What's-Her-Name is going to have an affair with Lord What's-His-Name. That was the last story, I say. Haven't you been listening? You know I don't like that modern stuff, except your books, of course. I happen to know she never finished Rick Chambers and Astarte. I just want you to stop bothering Justine. Can't you see she's upset by all this talk of violence? She turns back to her painting. B, hold your head up a little. You're drooping. A peaceful domestic scene. An ordinary evening among monsters. Five. How I joined the club. I knew Justine before we joined the club. We were in the circus together, the giantess and the cat girl. The manager was a good man, a Polish Jew who called himself Lorenzo the Magnificent. When I joined his travelling circus of marvels and delights, Justine had already been there for two years. She sat outside the sideshow tent, taking tickets from the patrons. She also had an act with two dwarves dressed as clowns and a pony that kicked on command. There is an etiquette in the circus. Everyone is polite to one another, but still the performers have a certain contempt for the sideshow and vice versa. The performers were proud of their tricks, walking the high wire, riding bareback, being shot from a cannon. 
but we needed no tricks in the sideshow. We were the tricks. We could perform without moving a muscle. I was Astarte, the cat girl from Egypt. I have no tail, and my ears are almost normal, just a little pointed at the tips. But you should have seen me in my costume. Cat ears, cat tail. I certainly looked the part. I would growl with fury and show the customers my claws. I even purred for the gentleman who paid extra to stroke me. Atlas, the strongman, stopped them if they went too far. I was always a respectable cat. Atlas was in love with Justine. He even asked her to marry him. Why don't you? I asked her. We had become friends, in part, I think, because of our similar family histories. Her father had made men out of corpses. Mine had made men out of animals. They were, in a sense, in the same profession. I just can't, she said. Is it your sainted papa? Are you afraid that you'll never find a man with his charm, his erudition? It's true that Atlas is not exactly literate. You're making fun of me. Please don't, cat. No, it's something else. I waited. You have to promise that you won't tell anyone. Who would I tell? It's not as though anyone else would understand. All right. The creature, the one my father made... He wanted me to be his mate. One day, he attacked me. You think I'm strong, but he was so much stronger. He had his hand around my throat. If he had wanted to kill me, I'm sure he would have. But that wasn't what he wanted, at least not then. I can't... I really can't talk about it anymore. Tears were streaming down her face. Oh, Justine, I said. So, you see, she said finally blowing her nose on a handkerchief. She seemed to have an endless supply of them. I'll never marry any man. I put my arms around her, and we sat together on one of the packing crates, listening to the elephant's trumpet. With the circus, we toured the provinces. That was when I fell in love with England, its greenness, its freshness. That was when I created Rick Chambers, the quintessential English gentleman, Eton and Oxford and cricket and the sun never setting and all that. Astarte will never defeat the English gentleman, no matter how many times she lures him into her bed. Of course, he'll never defeat her either. It would be boring if the English gentleman never won. Those were happy days, more or less, with Justine and Lola the bearded lady and Harold the wolf boy and the two dwarves Pip and Squeak. The pay was low, but we were like a family. However, they were destined to end. Lorenzo was in debt, and even the travelling circus of marvels and delights could not pay the full amount. If only I had the black widow, he said mournfully, one evening as we were eating our supper together around a campfire. The black widow was a new marvel, a beautiful girl whose breath was as deadly as the deadliest poison. She was not in a circus, but at the Royal College of Surgeons. Medical men were attempting to determine what made her so toxic. It was Beatrice, of course, but Justine and I didn't know that then. We knew of her only from newspaper articles. Poor girl, Justine would say, reading them. Why? It says that even the Queen has gone to see her. Imagine the price people would pay if she were in the sideshow. To kill everything you touch. I think that must be terrible. If you say so. Personally, I think it would come in handy sometimes. Two days before the circus was to break up, 
when Justine and I were wondering what we were going to do with ourselves, a woman came to see us. She was dressed in black and heavily veiled. When she drew back her veil, we saw a beautiful face with an olive complexion and black eyes, obviously foreign-looking, yet it would have been difficult to tell what country she came from. She looked so completely exotic, yet at the same time so ordinary, like an English lady. Aha, I thought. If I ever write a book about Astarte, I'll make her look just like that. Miss Frankenstein, Miss Morrow, she said. I'm delighted to make your acquaintance. Her voice was deep, musical, and I almost imagined that I heard the sounds of lyres as she spoke. I understand that your employment is almost over. I have been authorized to offer you membership in a very exclusive club. 6. The Reports of Our Deaths The reports of our deaths have been greatly exaggerated. Justine, believed dismembered, her body parts thrown into the sea. Beatrice, believed poisoned by a toxic antidote. Helen, believed strangled by hangman's rope. Catherine, believed killed by Moreau's hand. And yet, as you see, we survive. 7. The Stories We Tell Mary People often don't know that my father had a wife. She was left out of the case history that was written shortly after his death, I suppose to protect her privacy. Poor mother. She was only eighteen when she married, and he was in medical school. She was so proud to have married a doctor. My grandfather was a country vicar, and she had been educated at home by my grandmother, taught to sew and sing hymns and keep hens. She didn't understand when my father began refurbishing the laboratory, conducting experiments. When I was fifteen, shortly before she died, she told me, Your father was a good man. Never forget that, Mary. It was his science, his fatal science that ruined him. If only it had been a woman. Read your Bible, Mary. In it you'll find everything you ever need to know. Never give in to the curiosity that killed your father. Beatrice there's nothing wrong with science. In itself, it's neither good nor evil. It's simply a way of looking at the world. Mrs. Poole. Well, then, why does it lead to all those nasty mad scientists, I want to know? No, Miss Beatrice, I think all that science and experimenting should be left alone, especially by young ladies like yourselves. Mrs. Jekyll was a good, upstanding woman, and she was right. Everything you need to know you'll find in the good book. Beatrice. Science saved me, Mrs. Poole. When I recovered from Professor Baglioni's antidote, it was late afternoon. Where could I go? I loved my father, but I didn't want to return to his garden, which had been my prison for so many years, or to the lover who had so cruelly rejected me. Instead, I wandered around Padua trying to find the university— when I finally found the front gate, I asked to see Professor Baglioni. He was startled to see me. I think that he had, in an indirect way, tried to kill me, absolving himself of blame because he had not been sure of the result. I told him, If you don't help me, I'll go to the authorities and accuse you of attempted murder. I may be a monster, but I'm also the daughter of the famous Dr. Rappaccini, who has cured many of the townspeople, including the mayor's wife. Do you think they'll ignore me?
I don't know, really, if the authorities would have listened to me, but he was already frightened and uncertain of his position, so he did what I asked. He took me to his villa and brought me all of his books on natural philosophy, particularly botany. When those weren't enough, he brought me books from the university library. I spent months studying them, trying to understand my own physiology. I wanted to remove the poison from my system. I think part of me still hoped I could return to my Giovanni and say, Look, I'm a normal woman now. I still wanted him to love me, but I could find no way to alter my condition. One day he told me of my father's death. My father had continued his studies, but without me to tend the garden for him, he had slowly been poisoned by its fumes. How I cried. All the anger I'd felt toward him melted away, and I felt only an emptiness. I was now alone in the world. I left the seclusion of the villa and offered myself to the learned men of the university for study. When they could give me no answer, I went to another university, and then another... I traveled from city to city, from Padua to Milan, Geneva, Paris, and finally London, always hoping that someone would find a cure. Without that hope, sometimes I think I would have lain down on the earth and simply died. Finally, I decided that I would become a scientist myself. If I could not find an answer in books or from learned men, I would have to experiment. So I followed in my father's footsteps— I wonder if he would have been proud of me. Mary, I'm certain he would have. You are doing wonderful work. Diana, how do you do it, Mary? You always agree with everyone. You never say anything mean or lose your temper. Honestly, I think it's creepy. Sometimes I think you're a doll that a magician brought to life and taught to behave from a good conduct book. I have no problem with bee-making potions, but we shouldn't pretend that any of us will ever be normal. Sometimes, when I'm with the Viscount, all I want to do is bite him until he bleeds and lap up the blood. Cat knows what I'm talking about. Catherine. I often want to bite someone. The butcher looks so delicious, carrying those glorious hunks of meat. Diana. Exactly. Well, you girls know my history. My mother was a whore who didn't know she was with child until after my father died. She figured out what was what quickly enough, and Mrs. Jekyll paid through the nose, until my mother died of syphilis at twenty-one. I was sent to an orphanage run by nuns. How sick I became of their pieties. At night, when they thought all the girls were sleeping, I cut their habits to shreds and pissed in the communion cup. I rang the bells at the wrong hours— Finally, they decided the orphanage was haunted and brought in a bishop for an exorcism. But it was all me, of course. When I was old enough, I left to follow my mother's trade. Don't tell me that any science is going to make me normal. Eight. The stories we tell continued. Catherine. I killed my father. I bit him and bashed his head in. And when a ship finally came close enough to the island, I pretended to be in distress so the captain would take me aboard. He believed I was an English lady whose ship had been captured by pirates and who had finally been left to starve on a deserted shore. That was the only way he could explain my scars, and of course I told him that I could not remember anything before my time on the island. 
He brought me to England, and his wife cared for me. She taught me how to dress, how to eat with a knife and fork, all the things my father had not taught me. She wanted to adopt me as her daughter. They were childless. But one day, when I was sitting in the parlour, darning a sock, her little dog came by, a yapping little dog, that had never liked me, and bit me on the ankle. So I bit it back. When she came in, its corpse was dangling from my jaws. She started screaming. I left with only the clothes on my back. I begged in the streets for months before Lorenzo asked me to join his circus. Justine. Those were good days with the circus, weren't they? Beatrice. How did you join the circus, Justine? Justine. Do we have to talk about it? Beatrice. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to distress you. I was just curious. Justine. All right, but it's hard for me to talk about. I'd rather forget. The creature my father had made wanted a wife, so my father made me. But after he had completed me, he realized that he could not give me to the creature. So he made the creature believe he was destroying me by rowing out and throwing a sackful of stones into the sea. Then he took me to a cottage on the coast of Scotland, even more remote than our previous location had been. I won't give you to that monster, he told me. You have the ability to reason and to appreciate the beautiful. You are not like him, and you will not belong to him. The creature, supposing I had been destroyed, did not follow us. And so for a few years, a few happy years, we were left in peace. But one day the creature found our cottage. He was determined once more to have my father make another like himself. And there, on the shore by that northern sea, he saw my father playing with me, the bride who had been meant for him. We were throwing a ball back and forth, one of my favourite games at that time. Remember that although I was full grown, I was only three years old. He was in such a rage that he ran toward my father and strangled him with his bare hands. And then he attacked me. He forced me to live with him in that cottage, to read him the books my father and I had read together, to sit by the fire with him as though we were man and wife. But one night, as he lay asleep after drinking the last of the whiskey in the house, I stuck a kitchen knife into his heart. And then I ran, sobbing, because I had killed the man who'd been both brother and husband to me, the only one, as far as I knew, of my kind. I lived on berries, the bark from trees, and what I could steal from farmyards, the slop left for the pigs, the grain scattered for the hens. Once a man tried to shoot me with a gun, another time boys threw stones at me. Finally, I came to a town, and there was a circus. It was, of course, Lorenzo's travelling circus of marvels and delights. The tent was so bright, so cheerful, scarlet and yellow in the middle of a field, and I heard music. Although I was sick and starving, I walked closer to see where the music was coming from. But there, just by the tent, I fainted. When I came to again, I was in Lola's caravan, and Lorenzo was looking at me, smoothing his moustache. Cat, you remember what a black moustache he had? We were convinced he dyed it. Young lady, he said, I have a proposition for you. I was terrified. I'd never seen a human being before, except my father. But I accepted his offer to join the sideshow. What choice did I have? I had no way to earn my living in the world. I had only the knowledge my father had given me, and the fact that I was, you know, different. Beatrice.
Why do we always die in the stories? Catherine, because we're not the ones who write them. 9. The secrets we tell each other. Justine. Once I killed a man, I put my hands around his neck and strangled him. I didn't mean to. He threatened to shoot me with a gun. Mary. Once a man tried to kiss me. He was a clerk at the attorney's office when I went to hear the provisions of my mother's will. That was when I learned about Diana. It was my mother who had placed her in that orphanage. The front hall was narrow, and as he was handing me my coat, he suddenly leaned down. But then, at the last moment, he drew back. There was a look on his face, as though he'd smelled something repugnant. I don't know what it is. I don't think I'm unattractive. But no man has tried to kiss me since. Helen. I don't know how many men I've slept with. I never kept track. They were all respectable men, the kind you meet in drawing rooms or at balls during the season. You have no idea what strange taste some of them had. Beatrice. Well, please don't tell us. I don't think I have any secrets. Does that make me boring? Diana. I've had an abortion, and I would do it again if I had to. Catherine. Some days, when I look in the mirror, I just wish I looked normal. 10. Our plans for the future. Helen is the only one of us who's ever been married. Arthur Mayrink is her second husband. Her first husband committed suicide. Men have a way of doing that around Helen. But Arthur is an artist. Nothing she does can shock him. If he comes down in the morning to find that the parlour is turned into Arcadia, with naked women dancing to the sound of panpipes, he eats his breakfast in the kitchen. Most men are not so tolerant. Most men do not want a wife who is stronger than they are, like Justine, or who can bite through their necks as I can, or who, like Beatrice, can kill them with a breath. That, I suppose, is why we rather spoil Leda, sewing her dresses, letting her borrow whatever books she likes. Mrs. Poole makes her cakes and biscuits and tarts. Justine has said, Why don't we make a child of our own? We would make her out of corpses, or a large dog, or, looking at Beatrice, some sort of shrub, maybe a rhododendron. I say, Do you really think it would be a good idea to create another one of us? Aren't there enough of us in the world already? I know that Justine disagrees, that she thinks there's nothing much wrong with us, that the problem is with the world, which has no place for us in it. Except here, in this house. She has the confidence that comes from having once been loved. Helen says, Why just one? Why not start with three? Plant, animal, corpse, and see which one works best. Then go on from there. We could make any number of daughters if we wanted. What none of you except Diana realises is that we're powerful, not just because we're strong or deadly or have sharp teeth, but because of everything we've endured. We are our father's daughters in more ways than one. We could control the society we live in rather than hiding from it. Ever since we joined the club, Helen has tried to convince us to take over the world. Helen. Plan A. Beatrice creates a poison that we can introduce into the water supply. We make all of London sick. We offer to release the antidote, but only if the government pays us a certain sum of money. That's if we need money. Mary. 
We always need money. Catherine. B, could you actually do that? Beatrice. It wouldn't be particularly difficult, scientifically, but I wouldn't want to harm anyone. Helen. That's why we'd have an antidote. Plan B. We kidnap Queen Victoria. She shouldn't be too difficult to extract from Balmoral. Justine snaps her neck and then reanimates her in a remote location, perhaps the cottage her father used to own on the coast of Scotland. The reanimation erases her memories, creating a blank slate for us to write on. Over the course of a month, we teach her to trust us, do what we tell her to. We return her to a grateful nation, saying that we found her wandering, suffering from amnesia, and then through her we control the government. Justine. How do you expect me to reanimate her? And you know how well that worked for my father. The creature he created was uncontrollable, destructive. Beatrice. But wasn't he made from the corpse of a criminal? I've met the Queen. She's a kind and gracious woman. I'm sure her corpse would be much more amenable to suggestion. Mary. For goodness sake, don't let Mrs. Poole hear you. She has a picture of the Queen hanging over her bed. Where do you think we could get another housekeeper? Diana. We know you still have your father's notebooks. They're in the bottom drawer of your dresser, under your chemises. Justine. I can't believe you would go through my personal things. Catherine. You are talking about Diana here. I'm sure she's gone through all of our drawers. She doesn't take your clothes because they're too big for her, but I'm constantly missing stockings. Helen. Plan C. Catherine creates an army of beast people. We use them to terrorise London. Mary. How would that lead to world domination? Helen. Honestly, I haven't thought that far ahead. I just think it would be fun. Imagine we could make horse people and dog people and rat people. Diana. Well, what does Cat think? Catherine. I don't know. On one hand, it would be nice to have more of us. On the other, I don't think any of you understand my and B's and Justine's position. At least you were born rather than made. Do we really want to manufacture beings like ourselves? To create monsters as our fathers did? Although making beast people does sound easier, scientifically, than concocting a poison and its antidote, or animating corpses. I mean, it's just sewing the parts together. Any of us could do it. Justine. But why? Would we make society any better? Helen. We could, if we wanted to. We could put Mary in power. She's so orderly and logical. Imagine what sensible rules she would make. At least the trains would run on time. Justine. I suppose we could do it for the greater good. We could clean up the East End, especially those dreadful areas around Whitechapel. We could find homes for the children in orphanages and employment for the women who flaunt their wares on the streets. Helen. There, you see? I'm not saying we should spend all of our time planning to take over the world. I have other commitments myself. But I do think we should start giving it some serious consideration. Diana. Helen's only being practical. You know they're going to come after us eventually. They always do. Scientists, other monsters, the police. So why not take control first? Helen. Whether or not you agree with me now, there's going to come a day when all of you, except perhaps Mary, will want children. 
You'll want them to live safely in this world, and then you'll realize that it's time for us to seize power. You'll see. Maybe she's right. I do sometimes think about how nice it would be to have a daughter of my own, not just cats. 11. Why I wrote this sketch. Someday, I would like to write a book that isn't about Rick Chambers or Astarte. It would be the sort of book that George Eliot could have written, about life in a country town and the people who live there, their jealousies, their ambitions, the minutiae of their lives, how they fall in love with the wrong people or the right people at the wrong time, or lose a mercantile business on which their fortune is built, or misplace wills. You know, literature. But I've never experienced any of those things myself. All I know is monsters. So I decided to write about us. Just a sketch. No heroic Englishman journeying into the heart of a dark continent. No idol with rubies for eyes. No caverns of doom. Just us, sitting and talking. A story that George Eliot could have written. We are as ordinary in our own way as the inhabitants of a country town. In the morning we rise and make our beds, except Diana. We eat breakfast, toast and eggs for Mary, steamed turnips for Justine, raw chicken for me, and for Beatrice a cup of mossy water. Then Justine and Mary take up their work, while Beatrice helps Mrs. Poole, who has found mice in the pantry. Poor Beatrice, how she hates exterminator duty, but it's an easier death for the mice than Alpha's claws. I curl up in the rose chintz armchair and start my chapter. In the afternoon, Mary will go round to pay the bills. Diana will rise and go to the theatre. Beatrice and Justine will play a game of chess, and I will help Mrs. Poole polish the silver. We will worry about where the money's going to come from for a summer dress, how to make a cake with only one egg in it, who left the back door open, the plumbing, whether the cherries on the tree in the back garden will ripen this year, and growing old. I think George Eliot could have made something of us, don't you? 12. An application for membership. Yesterday I received a letter. Dear Miss Moreau, it began. My friend, Mrs. Jonathan Harker, nay Mina Murray, suggested that I write to you. Until a month ago, I lived in an asylum in Wittenberg, caring for my mother, whose health and sanity had been destroyed by certain experiments in blood transfusion performed by my father, Professor Abraham Van Helsing, whose work may be familiar to you from a variety of scientific journals. My own health was affected while I was yet in the womb, for her pregnancy did not alter his research. I suffer from an acuteness of hearing, an antipathy to light and to strong sense, and persistent anemia, as well as other medical symptoms that I can describe to you in more detail, if required. After my mother's death, I could not bring myself to live with my father, so I have been staying with friends or in boarding houses for the past month. I have no independent income, but I make a little money by giving singing and piano lessons. Mrs. Harker has described for me the club you formed in London for the daughters of mad scientists, and I wonder if my parentage and experiences might qualify me to join you. I would certainly be grateful to have a good home and to find companionship with others in my circumstance. Yours sincerely, Lucinda Van Helsing. Justine. Yes, of course. Write to her immediately and tell her that she can come. Poor dear. 
Mary. We can turn the library into her bedroom and put the books in the club room. We may also have some room for shelves in the front hall. I'll start sewing her curtains to block out the light. Diana. It'll be nice to have some music around here. It's so deadly quiet sometimes. I wonder if the piano is still in tune. Mrs. Poole. I've heard terrible things about this Professor Van Helsing. He killed a girl by driving a stake through her heart. Beatrice. But that's terrible. How can society allow such things? Helen. You know what I think. The more of us, the better. All right, any objections? We have to be unanimous, you know. We all shake our heads. Well, write to her then. Lida and I have to go now. We have to prepare for a Walpurgisnacht party in the studio. Artists, you can't imagine the mess they make. A troop of satyrs is nothing to it. Mrs. Poole, have you seen our umbrellas? We're going by bus and I think it's starting to rain. I say, I'll write to her tomorrow. It will be nice to have a new member of the club. Then we sit by the fire, reading or sketching or embroidering. Just us monsters. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is John Joseph Adams, Theodora Gosses, and everybody else's. So don't even go near this one. Big thank you to Theodora Goss and Justine Eyre. Thank you so much. So that is today's show, 274. No, it's not much. It's 278. Put to bed. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Like I say, if you're kind of thinking of maybe wanting to help out Starship Sova with the art, there's you know there's a position at the moment going there. If not, if we don't get any takers, then we'll just kind of leave it the way it is and just let it sit there. And if you're kind of mad keen on fitness, you don't actually you don't have to be mad keen on fitness. But if you like talking about tech, you know, are you interested in tech technology? Everything like that, you know, the Wi-Fi, scales, all the apps, sleep app. I'm addicted to that sleep app. I've been using it now for about 40 days, coming up to 40 days there now. Sleep cycle, it's called. And what a, it, it's quite strange how it helps you sleep. Do you know what I mean? You know where you're kind of going wrong when you're sleeping and you just adjust it. And it's, uh, it's quite strange, honestly. But anyways, if you want to, you know, get in, get in touch with us over that, you know, we kind of come on, we'll just kind of knock some ideas together. I'm open to suggestions. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.